Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the American Centrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. And in each episode of this 10-episode series, my guests and I will discuss a work of fiction set primarily in Chicago. For this first episode, we'll be discussing Theodore Dreiser's 1900 novel, Sister Carrie. And my guest today is Katie McGettigan. Katie McGettigan is Senior Lecturer in American Literature at Royal Holloway University of London, where she teaches U.S. writing and film from the Puritans to the present, covering all of it. Her first book, Herman Melville, Modernity and the Material Text, was published in 2017, and she has published essays in American Literature, Journal of American Studies, and Journal of Victorian Culture. Her current research focuses on print cultures of the Atlantic world in the long 19th century, and her second book, The Transatlantic Materials of American Literature, which explores the publication of U.S. writing in Britain and the role played by British publishers and print in the formation of an American literary field, is forthcoming with the University of Massachusetts Press in spring 2023. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, today we're going to discuss Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. It was originally published in 1900, um, but it's set in Chicago in 1889. So it's it was published at a time when Chicago had the Chicago that it was set in and the Chicago that it was published in are basically they're not two different cities, but they're very different cities. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think the idea of Chicago, particularly in the national consciousness transforms greatly between the the late 1880s and the turn of the 20th century. So I guess Chicago by the by the end of the 1880s is is really in America considered a kind of I guess a, a, an up and coming place in some respects but also in other ways a slightly dangerous place. The 1886 uh, sees an, an event called the Haymarket Affair which is a, a really big event in American labor history where a protest on behalf of the AR working day turns violent. A bomb explodes kind of mysteriously. No one's quite sure who's responsible. Um, there's shootings, police officers die. And then there's this kind of effectively a show trial, a really kind of big, big miscarriage of justice in which um, labor activists are convicted and very quickly executed before anything can be done about it. And this this really kind of begins um, a movement of kind of labor activism in Chicago. There's also the Pullman strikes in the early 1890s, another kind of big labor activism cause. So Chicago is on the one hand, this kind of radical city where potentially kind of dangerous things happen. But it's also a kind of city on the make in which people from from all over the country, but also from New York, which is interesting because it's, it's where Carrie goes in the second half of the novel, come with kind of bright new ideas for companies, for inventions, for new ways of doing things. And Chicago, because it is this sort of place where it's, it's possible to make yourself. And I think that's one of the things that Sister Carrie is particularly interested in, this possibility of making oneself. For sure. It becomes this place that in the popular imagination is, a, I guess, a kind of a, an exciting city, but one one that isn't doesn't kind of have, I guess, the strictures that somewhere like New York does, which on the one hand gives the possibility for rising, but on the other hand, potentially makes it a, a slightly dangerous place. Yeah, it's also Chicago is like you mentioned people coming in and like there's all the industrialists and the 
the people with the money people, the business guys are coming in from the East to kind of make themselves in Chicago and, you know, founding the big department stores and everything as well. But it's, it grows huge. It goes from being like the fifth biggest city in the U S to the second biggest city in about a decade and a half or something like that. It's like over the 1880s to about 1900. Also, the world's fair happens well, in 1893 fair. so it's not even it's not even on it's it doesn't touch this novel the world's fair even though it's like the event of late 20th century or late 19th century chicago right yeah it's this kind of weird background intertext that's never really directly mentioned although it was a kind of the you know celebrity event of chicago in the 1890s so for, for anyone who doesn't know, um, the World's Fair is essentially like a huge trade fair, huge exposition that takes place in Chicago in 1893, for which they build essentially an entirely new city on the on the shores of the lake to celebrate this called the White City. And it's it, it's this massive event. And there's there's a lot of anxiety in Chicago in the run up to it about whether they'll pull it off. They have the world's first Ferris wheel invented. They try and get something that's like the Eiffel Tower. They want something as kind of good as the Eiffel Tower, which was built for the Paris Exposition. So they build the Ferris wheel. And it is a huge success. And people flock to Chicago to come to see this amazing exposition. Electric lighting is kind of fully on display for the first time. It's one of the things that really popularizes electric lighting. The White City is this kind of gleaming metropolis that becomes one of the inspirations for L. Frank Baum's Emerald City in The Wizard of Oz, um, another kind of turn of the century Chicago novel, I guess, in a kind <laughs> of a strange kind of way. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really enter Sister Carrie kind of fully. Like she doesn't go there, she doesn't visit it. But a lot of kind of critics of the novel have seen it kind of creeping in in the background. So some of the descriptions of when Carrie is being courted by by her second lover in the text, Hurstwood, and he takes her on these drives through kind of Chicago's wealthy North communities. The descriptions of kind of beautiful buildings and manicured lawns um, are seen to be kind of reminiscent of the World's Fair um, that Dreiser did go to and did report on as part of his career as a journalist. Um, and also, I think the the kind of movement in Sister Carrie, the rise and the fall, the idea that the characters, so Carrie over the course of the novel moves upwards. She starts as a kind of impoverished, very much lower middle class girl who doesn't have a job, who struggles to find work. And by the end of it, she's this successful actress earning, you know, hundreds of dollars per week living in this beautiful hotel at no cost to herself. And Hurstwood, who starts as a successful manager of a, of a resort, ends up living on the streets, homeless, at the mercy of charities. This kind of pattern of rise and fall has been read as kind of evocative of the Ferris wheel. So, so what goes up must come down. But also this idea that although people do rise up and down, ultimately, perhaps kind of morally, they stay in one place. So you're, yeah, they don't go anywhere. They don't yeah. go anywhere, yeah. So one of the interesting <laughs> things about this novel is, is how far people's circumstances change but perhaps the question of whether their character what's within them changes at all or whether they just stay the same yeah um I, another way of thinking about it is like it's the it's a novel of vice rewarded like it doesn't matter how bad carrie behaves towards anyone she just keeps getting rewarded and rewarded and rewarded for it and has no reason to learn any lessons um she's you know she's like the the opposite of pamela in Richardson's novel, like virtue is rewarded. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because in some ways, Carrie is a kind of classic 
kind of female Bildungsroman figure. So, so mm-hmm. the novel of the novel of progress, the novel of coming of age. So we could see her as as a kind of early 20, turn of the century version of Jane Eyre. Like she arrives, flings herself on the mercy of relatives, doesn't have any money, is expected to work and earn her keep. But unlike someone like Jane Eyre, who who has this kind of consistently strong moral centre that guides her and leads her to make good choices, and she is eventually rewarded with the marriage and the kind of wealth and all of that, Carrie, in some ways, I guess, morally does not make good choices. Um, She chooses (laughs) to be kind of take up with men who have her as a kept woman and i'm you know i'm saying morally not good by the, the morals of carrie's own era like i'm you know i'm not yeah. judging her from my own perspective <laughs> stop judging sister carrie i know but and it, i guess the question is really like morally yeah carrie carrie makes some some questionable choices according to the morals of her own time but as you yeah. say she's she's rewarded for them and i think there is this question of well you know what what was she supposed to do yeah she, she begins, as I said, with not much money. She arrives to Chicago, having met this kind of glamorous or seeming to her glamorous man, Drouet, on the train. He has nice clothes. That's always good in Carrie's book. He has nice clothes. I love the opening of <laughs> the openings. I, was, I just opened to the um, first page. So I want to read a couple of things from it in a minute. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that opening uh, um, scene of the novel because Drouet is, uh, is such a charmer and he's such a sleazeball and she's just sort of sitting there on the train down from wisconsin going oh okay <laughs> well it's 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 so obvious to anyone who has any kind of worldliness at all who is not as naive as carrie that he's a complete chancer like he he's his clothes are like too nice for his occupation they're kind of showy in, a, in like a way that actual rich people don't dress yeah and and anyone who who had a kind of modicum of of knowledge about the ways of the world would see right through him, so you get this irony between kind of what what the reader knows instantly but what Carrie doesn't know at all, which I think is is such a great opening It also strikes me as a very modern i mean like it feels very contemporary still now reading that scene like you see this kind of thing happening all the time maybe not on trains into well probably also on trains into chicago you, you know you see it in nightclubs or in bars or in you know, walking around anywhere, and it and it's it's a it's a scene that is very contemporary, very it's very modern. I, I don't know, I don't know. If the, I feel like there should be a better word I could use for that, but anyway, it, the the novel begins with, literally begins with her walking onto the train, and she's been growing up in Wisconsin, and she's um, heading into Chicago to try and make some money for the family. It describes her this way. It says, uh, it was August 1889. She was 18 years of age, bright, timid, and full of the illusions of ignorance and youth. Whatever touch of regret at parting characterized her thoughts, it was certainly not for advantages now being given up. And then a couple paragraphs later, at the bottom of the first page, it has the, the first of, of Dreiser's like long passages where he proclaims about the world, some of which in this novel are successful and others of which are more dubious i suppose but uh he says when a girl leaves her home at 18 she does one of two things either she falls into saving hands and becomes better or she rapidly assumes the cosmopolitan standard of virtue and becomes worse of an intermediate balance intermediate balance under the circumstances there is no possibility the city has its cunning wiles no less than the infinitely smaller and more human tempter there are large forces which allure all the soulfulness of expression possible in the most cultured human the gleam of a thousand lights is often as effective as the persuasive light in a wooing and fascinating eye. And it goes on and on and on in there. And it, and it, 
<laughs> he just he moves from this girl to like then the city is a force but it's also a, a kind of personified force like he calls it superhuman in the middle of the paragraph i mean he already is running away with himself but it's interesting that just to come back to your ferris wheel thing it's like she's either going to become better or become worse mm-hmm. or possibly both it's, it can't be intermediate because she's going around on a on a wheel i suppose and that the city is this force that's going to make it happen yeah and i think this idea of external forces acting on people in ways that they cannot resist or control is, is something that Dreiser is is kind of interested in and Sister Carrie really across across all of his his novels there are these moments where there's a there's a determinism and the train itself is a really interesting symbol of yeah. this determinism right you're on it and you can't get off like you've just yeah got to you wait can only go it where it's going yeah takes you where it's yeah. going to go and and so that that sense that the city is also this kind of deterministic force that will take you where you're going to go. It will it will lift you up or put you down, and really you you don't particularly have much control over which it's going to do. And yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of kind of the relationship between Chicago as a city and the and the figures in the text because at this moment it seems like Chicago is maybe Dure, right? He's that kind of attractive, seductive mm-hmm. force. But at other times, Chicago is kind of Carrie, like this character, this this figure who is in the process of of becoming, and is always kind of in this process of becoming. Is always kind of doesn't ever quite reach a kind of fully formed state, which I think is interesting. No, yeah, and and the, uh, there's a there's like a lot to unpack about how that works in the novel because it's not only in Chicago. Half this novel is set in Chicago, half of it in New York, and he he makes the point. Uh, at the beginning of the New York part where he says something to the effect of like, however bad things could, could get in Chicago in New York, they can get so much worse. And then, and then like, you know, they do. And, and even at the end, like she's being, there's one character who we'll maybe talk about later called Ames, who is a guy from Indiana. And I suppose in that sense, it kind of tries her himself being from Indiana. It's like, a, he kind of almost a stand in for the, the author's point of view maybe. And, and he's sort of giving some, advice to katie and he's or to carrie katie i'm sorry i was looking at you and i uh, misspoke he's giving some advice to carrie and and trying to like morally center her or ethically center her and she's just it's almost like she's got a a monkey banging a pot in her head when he's saying it she's just kind of going oh why would he say that to me i don't know and then she kind of moves on from it but i wonder if we should set up a little bit of, of how these dynamics of the city work through the people so that we can maybe unpack them a little bit more as we go like this so carrie arrives in the city this salesman traveling salesman drew likes the look of her and chats her up on the train she then goes to her sister and brother-in-law's little apartment and they're <laughs> they're not very sympathetic people i feel the, bad for them the interesting the thing, right is that in some ways <laughs> they're the people who are doing everything right like yeah. they, he has it he has a job he works hard they save money. They bought their little, little lot. They're going to build a house on. They live within their means. But they're just oh god, they're awful. Like they're, they're, they're yeah, they're, mis- they're, they're, they're miserable. They're really portrayed as like miserable Norwegians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> miserable Scandinavians. Sorry about that. You know, stereotype coming in here. But yeah, like like the, the kind of worse worst aspects of the Protestant work work ethic really like yeah. parsimonious just overly moralizing like carrie wants to as as, you know you can you can understand this carrie wants to have fun she wants to see the theater she wants to see the city and they're like oh no you don't want to do that like it's just cost money give us your money don't have any fun and and there you know she has to get a job 
and she finds actually this is harder than she thought it would be. And I think this is one of the interesting points, I think, where Dreiser kind of sits on the fence about Carrie Morley. Because on the one hand, I think as a reader, you are sympathetic to her struggle to get work. Like she is, mm-hmm. she is trying. She's also not trying that hard at times. Yeah. And when she does get a job, and, and it's not it's not a particularly nice job, she gets a job in a shoe factory. But on the other hand, she also doesn't, you know, it, she she again, she could work harder and she could do more. And she's very judgmental about the people she works with. And yeah, she doesn't, you know, and she, she loses that job quite quickly because she gets ill and she can't go back to it. And so some of this is beyond Carrie's control and we do feel sympathetic for her. But on the other hand, we're starting to see that maybe she is also someone who when it's offered will very quickly take the easy way out so when she comes into chicago well no so, so she she comes in chicago with drew and he kind of gives her his address and says look look me up when you're in the city and and she does and they do get together and then he gives her some money and says you know buy yourself some nice clothes <laughs> which will prove to be the thing that convinces carrie of anything whether she can buy some nice clothes um so he says you know get yourself some shoes and a jacket it's, it's too cold you need to you need to have some better things and she takes the money and she sort of knows that she shouldn't because she's got herself into this kind of unspoken contract with this man mm-hmm. and he is going to want something back and even in her naivety she knows what that is on the other hand she's living a pretty miserable existence and like could it really be worse and so she she this is the kind of first first step either upwards or downwards depending on whether you're looking at her kind of financial success or her moral trajectory and, and then yeah. she, she moves in, or, or, or Drew moves her into into a furnished room, which is, is much nicer, and, and she begins kind of an existence as a kept woman. Yeah, and it's also that thing of she comes to the city because she needs money, but then discovers that she needs money to be in the city, and then money ends up becoming the city in that sense. And it's not that just for Carrie that that's true, right? Because then Drew introduces her to Hurstwood, who is a bit more he is kind of more the real deal that Hurst that Drew appears to yeah. be like presents himself as, right? Yeah. Hurstwood Hurstwood actually has real money. Um and, yeah. a, and a nice house in the north of the city. He's uh, he manages a resort which I, by by which I guess is, is meant kind of pleasure gardens, bars, restaurants, you know, places where rich people go to spend money. And and he has a wife and two children who he doesn't really like. Um, but also, again, this is one of the things where you're like, yeah. The portrait of his family life is like hysterically uh, yeah. miserable. It it's is. So, it's so comedic. And again, I think both sides are to blame. Like his wife and yeah. children are, are awful and money grabbing and don't really care about him as a person as much as him as a, a material yeah. provider. But on the other hand, he doesn't really make any efforts to actually get to know his wife. And, and, he be- and he's... he's He's deceptive. So, mm-hmm. Drew introduces Hurstwood and Carrie. Hurstwood immediately likes the look of her. And having already started a bit of kind of philandering on the side, decides that he's going to try and do the same with Carrie. And so, you know, takes to visiting Carrie when Drew as a traveling salesman, is out of the city, takes her on these carriage rides, and doesn't tell her he's married, which is the mm-hmm. big thing. Like, does not yeah. ever say that he's married. So Carrie, having been like, well, one guy did this for me. This other guy seems to be doing it for me. <laughs> Why not? Like, I also like him. He's he's more sophisticated than Drew. I can tell that. He's got more money. 
maybe he'll give me a few more opportunities. And he does give Carrie this. And he this, does, this yeah. Big, as I was just thinking, he does the big opportunity that becomes the kind of gets her onto the stage. But yeah, so for one of my favorite chapters in the novel, the one where she's she's actually in the in the play. Yeah, an yeah. hour in Elfland. The, I should point out at this stage that the titles to the chapters in this novel cannot be beaten. They're they are all really good. like so yeah. hysterically over the top. Yeah. And then yeah, chapter nineteen is called. An hour in Elfland, a clamor half heard, <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's so there's like a it's like a fundraiser, isn't it? Yeah. So they're doing a performance of Under the Gaslight, um, which was mm-hmm. a really popular melodrama written in the mid nineteenth century, um, but performed like consistently well, well into the twentieth. And actually, um, if anyone knows that's that's a kind of famous recurring scene where somebody's tied to the railway and they get rescued <laughs> under the gaslight is, is the play that that scene originates in so so that's the play they're performing as a melodrama yeah and and hurstwood has engineered the a role for her in this play so that he can i think that, i think there's so much interesting about this because he's engineered this role basically so he can go to the theater and admire her on the stage and sort of you know ogle her from the in in polite company or something yeah and, and i guess give yeah you're right a respectability to something that he's already doing so yeah he, um, yeah and and, and it's, it's kind of showing her off right like look how clever i am that i found this beautiful girl and 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 i can get some kind of admiration through her but like it's interesting because obviously at first she's she's not very good <laughs> yeah yeah that it's and, and he so the other thing that's important here is that hurstwood and Drewey are sitting next to each other yeah. at the play <laughs> yeah it's i mean yeah. it's just like it's a great love triangle yeah. scene yeah. as well as being this ridiculous play in a play scene or you know story within a story scene and like there's so much happening here um but yeah she's terrible yeah at first at first and then Drewey goes back to to talk to her and sort of say like you know I knew, you know, you've just got to do it like you did it in rehearsal. Go on out and and do it. And actually, you know, she does. And and it seems, and it's really interesting the way that that Dreiser describes it because it's almost as though Carrie. There's this kind of paradox in which Carrie is a natural actress, so she mm-hmm. is most herself when she is pretending to be someone else. And this act of pretending to be someone else is the thing that she is kind of intrinsically good at. So it's it, it's it's a sort of very complicated thing to try and work out like this this relationship between acting and being um and the line that gets drawn between acting and being and i think mm-hmm. with carrie particularly it's very very difficult even w- when you finish the novel to work out what she actually is versus what she just chooses to perform and this is really why she's why she's such a good actress i think yeah there's this there's the moment this is on page 168 in my in my edition, um, where she's on stage, this is the moment where where suddenly she starts becoming a good actor. She's acting uh, alongside a professional. Um, it says it means the professional actor set began speaking as Ray that society is a terrible avenger of insult. Have you ever heard of the Siberian wolves? When one of the pack falls through weakness, the others devour him. It is not an elegant comparison, but there is something wolfish in society. Laura has mocked it with a pretense, and society, which is made up of pretense, will bitterly resent the mockery. Mm. 
At the sound of her stage name, Carrie started. She began to feel the bitterness of the situation. The feelings of the outcast descended upon her. She hung at the wing's edge, wrapped in her own mounting thoughts. She hardly heard anything more save her own rumbling blood. And then um, she she basically misses her cue for a second because she's this moment on the stage has made her think about her own situation like the most deeply she probably thinks about it at all in the entire novel actually at this moment before or after and then and then she goes out and acts her brains out and steals the show and what i always find really interesting as an extra element of this is that then you you have Drew A and Hurstwood sitting there and it, and it very explicitly is it talks about how much they are admiring oh she's Carrie's brilliant Carrie's brilliant. and they're admiring this illusion that she's putting on which they've also previously admired their projection their own illusion that they've projected onto her and so the these illusions of the city being sort of centered on Carrie I just think are great in this scene yeah and uh, th- this idea that ultimately what they're admiring is also it's, it's their own efforts right they 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 both feel like they made carry like she's something that they, they manufactured and yeah i think you're right this does come back to the city which is always described as being kind of these these glass fronted buildings where carrie's kind of conscious constantly catching her own reflection as she kind of mm-hmm. walks between the department stores so the idea that the, what the what the city is really good for is is reflecting back on you what you want to see from it rather than mm-hmm. than revealing anything deeper about yourself i think is really interesting yeah yeah this is where hurstwood really decides to go for broke decides yeah, to actually... <laughs> yeah well indeed yeah yeah so he's 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 decided now that that carry is it carry is what he wants even and and, and at, at this point, it sort of also becomes revealed to Drew via a neighbor that Hurstwood has been visiting when he's away, and he kind of confronts Carrie about this. And Carrie says, "Well, what of it? You know, you did the same thing with me." And he says, "Well, don't you know mm-hmm. he's married?" And then Carrie has this kind of breakdown because this is this is for her a sort of step too far. Yeah. At this point, so she, he refuse she refuses to see Hurstwood. Hurstwood's wife gets a kind of inkling that things have been going wrong and then gets a bit more of an inkling when someone says to her oh i saw your husband at that fantastic theater performance and he said you were sick and you couldn't come and she's like what "What is he doing (laughs) what is he doing um and and basically says to him like you know you're gonna give me what i want or i'm gonna divorce you and that will ruin you because he has to keep up a respectability for his occupation so she says just you know if you keep if you keep me in money then I'll I'll be all right. We'll we'll keep this on, but don't expect any kind of kindness from me. Yeah. And and Hurstwood's like uh, feeling a bit under pressure now because he's got he's got money, but not quite as much money as the people his wife runs with. So and he's mm-hmm. also got to now keep Carrie as well because she's she's accustomed to a certain standard, and he feels very trapped, and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And Carrie's also not speaking to him because it's been revealed he's married. And he finds himself in his office late one night, and this is this is the real kind of pivot point of the text. Yeah. Um. So and a great, great scene. So, it has to be said. So good. So he's in the habit of kind of going out after work, coming back to check everything is kind of locked up before he goes home. And he it happens on this one night where he's in the middle of this kind of crisis that actually, and this is kind of Dreiser's Dreiser's determinism, kind of chance and fate. It has not been locked up. 
the safe hasn't been locked and the takings for the day, which is a, a, a kind of a, a hundred thousand pounds or more, are not locked away. And you get the scene that every time I read it, it's one of those scenes that you go back to and you just you, you wonder whether it's going to end differently, even though I know it's not going to. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. how it's going to turn out. And I'm still there shouting, like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't yeah. take the money. And he's just like, this is also... I'll just hold it for a yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to hold this money. This is, this is in a chapter, <laughs> chapter 27, called When Waters Engulf Us, We Reach for a Star. <laughs> That's such a good chapter, <laughs> and he's like yeah he's like so he comes in and he sees the money in the safe he's like oh that's weird the safe isn't locked well i better just uh lock the safe and just he's going to he's like ah i'll just hold the money and then and then everything's happening like outside of his control somehow yeah. at least in his his mind of it and it's kind of it's one of these things where the the author is is really taking advantage of of focalizing mm. a, a uh, the telling of a story through a character's just a light touch on the character's perception, right? So he's he's got this ironic distance to Herswood, but he's also making use of Herswood's uh, point of view. And it's like I'm just going to hold the money, and then oh, somehow the, uh, it, there's all this like passive voice, like things just keep happening yeah. to Herswood. He happens the money ha- happens to be in his hand. The, the safe door happens to click locked yeah. while he's holding it. And it's like, what did a breeze, like a really strong breeze rip through the Fitzgerald and Moy office and close the, the, the safe? Or did, did Herschel actually close it? You know? Yeah. And it's this, again, this moment where you don't know. So it's, yeah, it's this, you know, while the money was in his hand, the lock clicked, it had sprung. Did he do it? And you're like, well, well, did he? And, and yeah. maybe he must have done, but the foc- because it's, as you say, because the focalization is from his perspective he's not going to give that away and it, it suits Hurstwood to treat this as a kind of a, again a, a fatalistic thing that he couldn't possibly have avoided and then once the money's in his hand well he can't he can't just call them up and say oh I've got this money because they'd know he was stealing yeah. and it's like well you've put a spin on that there Hurstwood like you could have you could have explained you could have explained anything um, and probably people like to trust other people they would have have um you know, nodded it away. But no, he takes this as a sign that what he's got to do is take the money and leave Chicago with Carrie. And so he lies to Carrie again and says that Drury has been hurt and she needs to come to the hospital. And the quickest way they can do this is to get on a train. But unbeknownst to Carrie, he's bought a ticket to Montreal, so over the border, and she gets on the train. And then she's like, hmm, Tell me a bit more about what's happened to Duray. And Hurstwood says, yeah. oh, you know, it's fine. And and then Carrie eventually gets out of him that nothing has happened to Duray, but they're, they're running away together. Yeah, and then she says, I want to get out of the train. And this is, comes back to what yeah. you were saying. So she she comes into Chicago on a train, and um, you know that's where she wants to end up. And now she's leaving Chicago on a train, not to where she wants to be. Yeah. And, but she's got no choice. She can't get off. the train yeah, doesn't stop. Yeah, they can't get off the train. Yeah. Um, and, and in the same way that Hurst would describe this as, well, I don't have a choice. I've got the money now. Events are set in motion. And, but then he, like, he doesn't really follow through on his new career as a robber because it soon, news soon reaches him that obviously his, his, his former bosses are like, you've stolen the money, haven't you? Like, this is quite <laughs> obvious. You've stolen the money. If you send it back, you know, obviously you're not going to have your job, but we won't prosecute you. But Hurstwood realises that he's going to need something to start a new life because 
unlike Harry, he's kind of got a sense that he's going to need money to be in a new city. So he keeps some of it. They buy a load of new clothes, obviously, that's, again, back to the clothes. Hey, yeah. <laughs> they go shopping. They buy a load of new clothes in Montreal. He keeps, I think, $1,500 of it, sends Something the rest like back. That, yeah. And then they hop on a train for their next adventure, another train, uh, this time into New York. Yeah, and that's um, I've got the the chapter open, chapter thirty, the Kingdom of Greatness, the pilgrim, the pilgrim, a dream. It opens like this: Whatever a man like Hurstwood could be in Chicago, it is very evident that he would be but an inconspicuous drop in an ocean like New York. In Chicago, whose population still ranged about five hundred thousand, millionaires were not numerous. The rich had not become so conspicuously rich as to drown all moderate incomes in obscurity. The attention of the inhabitants was not so distracted by local celebrities in the dramatic, artistic, social, and religious fields as to shut the well-positioned man from view. In Chicago, the two roads to distinction were politics and trade. In New York, the roads were any one of a half hundred, and each had been diligently pursued by hundreds, so that the celebrities were numerous. The sea was already full of whales. A common fish must needs disappear wholly from view, remain unseen. In other words, Hurstwood was nothing. Poor Hurstwood. Yeah, and I think this is another moment where essentially, so what essentially happens when they move to New York is that their positions over a course of time reverse. So Hurstwood yeah. buys into a bar, but it never really makes him much money, and then it, it collapses. So he loses his, his investment and he loses his job. And he he does the same thing that Carrie does when she arrives in Chicago. It's a kind of mirror scene mm-hmm. where he, he traipses the streets looking for work, finds that he he can't he doesn't have enough money to buy into a position that would would really pay but also he's kind of too well qualified um and too old quite frankly too old old for for a kind of an entry-level position as we might call it now and so he can't find a job and and like exactly like carrie really on the one hand we're a bit sympathetic to this like hurstwood's made some bad choices but he is also in a difficult position here um, but then again, he also doesn't try very hard, and he's got a certain yeah, sense. He gives up pretty quick. <laughs> he does give up pretty quick. He's got a certain sense of what life owes him, um, mm-hmm. and he's not willing to try other things. Um, and he finds it easier to just kind of put off the problem of not having a job. He's he's like his own family in that respect, right? Like that's the the problem of his his kids, as far as he's concerned, is that they it is exactly that they they uh, they're comfortable with what they have. They have certain expectations, and they don't really want to lift a finger. To, ch- to change anything or to make anything themselves and he- you see him kind of in a similar predicament yeah I, I think that's really true and also this idea of of this idea that once you once you have risen you don't want to do it again like there's, there's a it's a it's kind of drives us i think critique of this kind of american mythology of kind of self-makingness mm-hmm. this idea that you can build yourself up but also that once people reach a particular position they don't want to do that anymore they, yeah. they want things to, to be given to them, like the kind of hard work gets its own rewards isn't something that they isn't a, a philosophy that they, they kind of appreciate anymore, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So Hurstwood does kind of have this, I guess, like real midlife crisis where he just like stops, stops getting dressed in the mornings, um, just sits around the apartment all day in his in his kind of dressing gown. He's a real portrait of depression, really. Yeah. Um, it, you know, that it doesn't really exist as a, a term at this time or whatever, but it's, it is a portrait of a, not just a midlife crisis, but of a, of a man, a middle-aged man getting depressed. Yeah, there's this, there's this really kind of excruciating scene where Carrie's friends turn up 
and he's in yeah. his dressing gown and he hasn't got dressed and you're just like oh god this is painful and it's moments like that where you do feel feel sorry for him mm-hmm. and and feel that he has and you, you be, I think you begin to feel more sorry for him, even though he continues to maybe not make some great choices. But at the same time that he's falling, Carrie is like, right, I've got to do something about this because we don't have any money. And he's not going to... She she quickly does. And this is one of the moments where she, she is a kind of gets more clarity, I think, on things and mm-hmm. sees, sees Hurstwood for what he is in not a particularly kind way, but perhaps quite a, a kind of perceptive way. And realizes that if anyone's going to get them out of this mess, it's going to be her. And she's like, well, I always wanted to be an actress and I was pretty good at it. So I'm going to go around and try and get myself a position. And because she's pretty, she does, she succeeds. She finds a small company that will take her as a chorus girl. And it is, you know, she is a good actress. She's good on the stage and she impresses people and she does her parts well. Um, and so her kind of, I guess second kind of rise begins her New York rise, and and in some ways this rise is more um, more easy for a, a reader to kind of buy into and feel sympathetic. But she's not rising on the basis mm-hmm. of what men give to her; she's rising yeah. on the basis of her own talents. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just looking at an interesting passage at the at the end of uh, chapter thirty five says um where she's feeling sorry like hurstwood's self-respect has vanished and so her respect for him has as well and then she says uh he had some money he had a decent suit remaining he was not bad looking when dressed up she did not forget her own difficult struggle in chicago but she did not forget either that she had never ceased trying he never tried he did not even consult the ads in the papers mm-hmm. anymore i think she did not forget she'd never ceased trying and i think is that really true carrie no. did you really never cease you never really you kind of did cease trying yeah she's, <laughs> pretty quickly. she's on the verge of going back to back to columbia city isn't she at the moment when Julie yeah. comes and says oh, i'll give you an apartment and and so she yeah i think this this idea of carrie's ability here to rewrite her own history as one of self-making when she hasn't been self-made at all until this point yeah but then she does as you say she does actually make herself she she gets herself into a chorus line and then she seizes the opportunities to become you know what she's what she wants yeah she she does things to get herself noticed she takes the parts they're given her um she negotiates for her pay but all this really does is is make her, I guess, very resentful of Hurstwood's dependence on her. And this is the point, right, that Hurstwood has a brief foray into strike breaking. Yeah. <laughs> Which we, I guess we should probably talk about as well. Which doesn't go well. No, it does not. So um, there is a, a kind of trolley driver's strike in New York. And, and Hurstwood sees that they are looking for men to drive the trolleys, essentially to scab. So this is, I think this is a sort of, I mean, there were, there was, this is a real period of kind of industrial unrest in the United States and, and a, a very strong kind of left wing energy that is often forgotten, mm-hmm. I think, in, in histories of the United States. So this is a moment where there's real public investment in, in socialism as a possibility, um, in which kind of union leaders are becoming national heroes. And, and Dries is very interested as, you know, as a journalist, he was reporting on this and, and he's very interested in this. So he, he talks about the kind of trolley workers strike and this idea that they're looking for people. And, and for Hurstwood, this is a chance to finally, finally earn some money. 
but he he sort of very much underestimates how difficult this is going to be. And again, I think this is a moment where we're very conflicted in our feelings towards him and our sympathies. That on the one hand, you know, it's 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 not a great thing to do to um, assist in strike breaking by offering one's labour. On the other hand, he doesn't have that many options. And he is subjected to kind of really quite quite scary violence, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how... It's interesting the effect... Of, like, the, Dreiser's fairly good on pinpointing the changes in Hurstwood's attitude through this moment, right? So I'm just looking at the... Um, chapter now, like at the beginning, he's he's um, when he's jumping into the job, he says uh, Hurstwood. Some he's talking to a couple other guys and says Hurstwood paid some little attention to this. Somehow he felt a little superior to these two, a little better off. To him, these were ignorant and commonplace poor sheep in a driver's hand. And it's like, you know, he's still that sneery, snotty, snobbish guy that he was when he was managing Fitzgerald and Moyes back in Chicago, with no real conception mm. that he's actually worse than them yeah yeah quite and that he's there too right and and actually he yeah he doesn't understand how any of the kind of labor systems work like what you're supposed to do to kind of get your get your lunch or to sign up for stuff and yeah and and he's yeah you're right he's he's definitely got the sense of his, his own superiority yeah and now that he's on the now that he's on the tram Hurstwood, warm and excited, gazed steadily ahead. It was an astonishing experience for him. He had read of these things, but the reality seemed something altogether new. He was no coward in spirit. The fact that he had suffered this much now rather operated to arouse a stolid determination to stick it out. He did not recur in thought to New York or the flat. This one trip seemed a consuming thing. He's suddenly now he's completely... He's no longer snobbish and apart from it. He's completely consumed by it out of necessity, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I like I really like that phrase. This idea of the kind of consuming thing, because this is a, this is a text that that's about kind of consumption running both ways, right? This this idea of of a kind of insatiable desire to consume things and consume people that is is really the def- defining aspect of all the characters in the text, but also this sense that if one is not a consumer like if one doesn't have the resources mm-hmm. to be a consumer then you are consumed and you will be consumed by the city and there isn't it's again that going back to that very first passage that you discussed this idea that there's no yeah. there's no in-between point you either are consuming yeah. or you're consumed yeah and so he gets we should finish off what happens in this scene. he he gets um basically knocked uh not beaten up exactly but he gets he gets yanked out of the tram and, and knocked down and then he goes home and reads about it in the paper yeah yeah um which in some ways like i think i'm just looking at that very end sentence where he adjusted his paper very comfortably and continued it was the one thing he read with absorbing interest that there is almost this kind of like oh i'm in the papers isn't that Uh, yeah it's like yeah my my margin note there says what so it's just entertainment again (laughs) it's hard to figure out it's hard to figure out what exactly what that means i think yeah or whether like i get i guess I keep thinking that he he enjoys reading the papers earlier, doesn't he? Because he he likes seeing the celebrities there that used to come into his resort, and it's almost and and mm-hmm. and he sort of feels there's a sadness that he's not part of that world, and almost like being in the papers, he is again, but also like just completely yeah. not. Like it's a completely different kind of being in the papers, but that that what he wants 
And I think this isn't this is just something that's that's in her wisdom. What he wants above all is recognition. And he feels that yeah. he's owed recognition, that he's the kind of man that should be recognized and people should recognize him. Um, although then he hates being recognized in New York because obviously he's been recognized mm-hmm. for the wrong thing. So that sense of, of, of a spotlight, I think, which is also what he gives to Carrie, which is interesting. Yeah. He's, he's somehow got it again, but obviously not, not in, in a, a really way he was twisted kind of way. Yeah. 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 And then I, that kind of brings us to the, the Hurstwood's end. Yeah. There's a real, so the, the real contrast, if we think about them on the, on the Ferris wheel again, like they're they, they've gotten off it somehow they got on the the ferris wheel roughly together yeah. maybe a couple cars apart yeah but now they're now they're 180 degrees away from yeah. each other and i yeah so this is the point where carrie kind of decides she can't take it anymore and i was just going to read her letter to him because it is oh please probably do yes. one of my favorite parts of the entire text so she's decided she's sick of giving him money and, and a friend of hers from the chorus line says come and move in with me and she she kind of jumps at this chance to just leave him behind. He's 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 just kind of holding her back now. Um, and so you know, to give Carrie her due, she does borrow some money from her friends, so she's not leaving him absolutely destitute. And then she writes this letter that she leaves the money, and he reads, "Dear George," he read, crunching the money in one hand, "I'm going away. I'm not coming back anymore. It's no use trying to keep up the flat. I can't do it. I wouldn't mind helping you if I could." but I can't support us both and pay the rent. I need what little I make to pay for my clothes. I'm leaving 20, I know, I'm leaving $20. It's all I have just now. You can do whatever you like with the furniture. I won't want it. Carry. Oh, and it's just like, it's, it's the emphasis on material things, right? So mm-hmm. this idea that she's leaving him because she can't, not because she doesn't love him, which is actually true. Like she, he's not the man she thought he was, but because she can't financially support him. Then this just like classic Carrie line, like I need what little I make to pay for clothes. Like this idea that that's (laughs) ultimately what she wants in life is, is to, to be well-dressed, to put on a, to wear the costume, to put on a good impression. And, and she can't do that and have him. And then she makes her choice of things. Like she chooses things. And then this final line about, the furniture like do what you want with the furniture there's nothing about the kind of life that they've built together or or their relationship which is because ultimately their relationship was based on what each of them could do for each other yeah and then the lies that he told she's very explicit about there's a scene earlier where where he's like yeah we she's like she says i'm not married to you and he's like well what do we do in montreal and she's like it was lies yeah yeah it was lies so forget it buddy yeah and that's like that that's the illusion again right like if he falls in love with an illusion of her as a young girl that he can kind of take under his arm or whatever make him feel younger and he falls in love with the illusion of her that he puts on the stage in the amdram performance in chicago then then here's that illusion like everything's built on these illusions or the reflections in the in the shop glass that you were talking about earlier and the minute you turn the stage lights off and take the costumes off, right? Take the clothes yeah. off. You're, you're nothing's underneath. And I think there is this there is this real emptiness of character that that should like you would think was a failing in a text, but Dreiser mm-hmm. makes it this kind of calling card of, of Sister Carrie that there's just aside from and I'm I'm kind of riffing on a on a, a, a really kind of influential reading by by Walter Ben Michaels here, but like aside from the things that people want, they don't have anything. 
And if all you are is what you mm-hmm. want, then you're nothing at all. And that there is this just yeah. kind of flatness and emptiness that, that everyone is just waiting for what they can trade up to, this kind of exchangeability um, of swapping themselves for another. Yeah. That, that, that's just, just kind of exposed completely by the end of this text. Yeah, this is where it leaves him. Um, this is af- just after he's read the letter. Then something like a bereaved affection and self-pity swept over him. She needn't have gone away, he said. I'd have got something. He sat a long while without rocking and added quite clearly out loud. I tried, didn't I? At midnight, he was still rocking, staring at the floor. <laughs> I tried, didn't God. I? Not really. God. Not really. It's just, and this, the rocket, so the rocket, so I talked about the Ferris wheel before, but the rocking chair is another yeah. one of these things, recurring symbols in the text, right? There's lots of moments where different people sit in rocking chairs. Yeah. And again, it's this illusion of motion, but you're not actually going anywhere. Yeah. So and it, like, you're right, it's this deception. Well, I would have, I would have got somewhere. I would have risen again. It's like, but you wouldn't, would you? Like, you wouldn't have. Just yeah. stuck in one place, and she knows it. Yeah, because doesn't Olson sit in his rocking chair in the evenings when he, he gets does. home he from work? He sits in his rocking chair. There's several scenes of so Carrie sits in that chair, and then at the end, she's also sitting in a rocking chair. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, of yeah, course, which yeah. is which is interesting about this idea that she does it. She does it in the first rooms of Chicago that she goes to, where she's nothing, and she does it again in New York when she's something. She's a big deal. But she's doing she's doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, what a novel! Yeah, <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> One of the. I wonder. I wonder. Um, just as a way of maybe wrapping up our discussion, we just talk a little bit about. Um, well, there's like, like a couple things actually. I was thinking about the style. We've I've touched on the style of the novel a bit, and just talk a little bit about Dreiser as a journalist. Mm-hmm writing a novel and how you feel about the style of this novel because one of the things that's said about this novel sometimes is that it's like the the greatest bad book ever written and that kind of thing and it's like it's quite a strange thing to say about a novel like and i feel quite ambivalent about it myself because part of me thinks well how can it be a bad novel if it's great and Mm -hmm. it is great i love sister carrie but at the same time there's a lot of awful (laughs) writing in there it is. and what does that exactly mean to you i guess is kind of what i'm asking yeah so that's i think you kind of hit on it earlier where you said there are lots of these paragraphs where dreiser kind of pauses and it's like let me tell you about chicago in 1899 or let me tell you about uh, what the department stores were like or let me tell you about business in new york and yeah in some ways they they shouldn't work like if you were editing theodore dreiser that would be the bit where you're like Get rid of it. That's your yeah. research showing. Like, just ch- cut, cut it out. But I think there's something about, and again, it comes back to this idea that these characters have a kind of flatness to them, that they they really, in some ways, there isn't any depth to anybody. Like, they almost seem actually mm-hmm. incapable, aside from Ames, perhaps, of any true depth. So, in some ways, I think this kind of idea that this isn't this is just kind of a an account of what people do and in some ways uh, there's it's kind of left it's left to the reader to kind of psychoanalyze why they do it mm-hmm. which in some ways feels a, a kind of maybe maybe proto-modernist maybe even proto-postmodernist that we are kind of given these shifting surfaces and invited to think about what might be going on behind them but Dreiser's account is quite almost almost a kind of journalistic detachment a, a refusal to 
or in some ways an encouragement to, to come to judgments, but a refusal to kind of pass them entirely. Like it's, it, I, I find it interesting to think about whether uh, Sister Carrie is a is a kind of is a, is a moralistic novel. Like, are we supposed to ultimately judge these people as good or bad, or are we just simply presented with a set of circumstances and been told, well, you know, judge all you want, but like is that fundamentally going to change anything? Like, this is, this is how Yeah, I was just going to say, like, judge all you want, but it is what it is anyway. It goes back to those opening paragraphs of the novel where he says, look, a girl of 18 rolls into the city, she's either going to get better or worse, and there's nowhere in between. And he, so he's telling you the story he's going to tell you, and he's almost asking you at that point, you, you judge for yourself whether she gets better or worse. Like, she materially gets better... I'm not sure she does get any morally worse as the novel no, goes No, I think, on. and that's interesting because I don't think, I don't think Carrie fundamentally changes. She perhaps gets more no. aware of the world that she's living in, but she doesn't, and and she she becomes aware, I guess, of her need for self reliance. That's a, that's a kind of big big change, mm-hmm. I, I suppose. But but her moral compass about what's good or bad, and I was going to say it doesn't shift, but then I'm like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I even really know what it is. Like she knows what's expedient or what's going to serve her at any point, and I guess she she has she does like she does react quite strongly to to Hurst with being married. But whether that's because she feels like a relationship with a married man is morally unacceptable, or whether she's just annoyed that he's lied to her, is 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 a difficult thing to determine. I think. Yeah, and he do, and he doesn't. It's one of the things that I think very good about this novel perhaps i don't know maybe even a bit groundbreaking about this novel in american literature that he that he allows you to have that ambiguity and he allows this is something that we'll we'll see again in other novels that i'm going to discuss with with people in this series that he allows the characters the benefit of their point of view right or wrong yeah and we see we see that again in james farrell's work we see that again in Richard Wright's work. We see it again in Nelson Algren's work in particular. For me, he's the guy who does it like to the apotheosis mm. of its thing. But like, but it's Dreiser is the one who's breaking that ground a little bit and, and saying it's not a morality tale. It might be a tragedy, but it's not a morality tale. And I'm not going to sit here and 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 pretend otherwise. Yeah, and I think you know it's worth saying that that this the kind of that that point is very controversial about this text when it's first published. So it, it's accepted by the publisher as Dreiser has it. Um, and then one of the publisher's wives is like, hang on, this is this is a pretty immoral book. Have you have you looked closely at this? And and they want to they want to edit it, um, and Dreiser says, No, you've agreed, we have to publish it. So it's published, but they do very, very little to kind of promote it. It's it's really a failure. And then it's it's only in an edited text that it circulates for a long period of time, I think until the nineteen eighties when when yeah. the original text is then is then republished so it's certainly that that wasn't something that was that was accepted particularly at its moment of publication yeah great thank you very much for joining me on the literature of chicago podcast katie mcgettigan has been my guest and it's been great talking to you thanks so much thanks doug
just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.